All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Um, we have been away for three months, and it's a delight to be back again for this Rector's Forum. Uh, for those of you who may be joining us for the first time, perhaps you were in the Foundations class and you've graduated from that and you are now joining us. We are in an ongoing study of the fourth gospel, the Gospel of John. So I want to encourage you, as I often do, to bring your Bibles to this class. I'm going to, as of next week, Bill Christian's going to be taking role and seeing who is bringing their Bible with them. Um, so I encourage you to do so. Um, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. You may have another version that's perfectly fine, whether it's the NIV or the King James Version or the NASB, whatever it may be. Um, all of those translations will be perfectly fine. But we are picking up today where we left off in the fall, and where we left off in the fall was the end of John chapter 6, and so that brings us to the beginning of John chapter 7. And what we're going to do today is read through the first 18 verses. I seriously doubt that we'll make it through all 18. Um, but nevertheless, we're going to go ahead and read them. It'll set the context for where we are at this point in the story of Jesus. So John chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Just a reminder of the context when we get to John chapter 7. As indicated here in the text, Jesus had been ministering in the area of Galilee. Now, if you remember the geography of ancient Palestine in the first century, you will recall that Israel could basically be divided into three sections. There was Judea to the south in and around Jerusalem. Then just to the north, there was a swath of land known as Samaria, where an ancient people known as the Samaritans lived. The Samaritans were in part related to the Jews, but hated by the Jews because they were regarded as half-breeds. And then beyond Samaria, to the very north, was this region of Galilee. 
And that's where Jesus spent the bulk of the early days of his ministry. Now, Galilee was a relatively small area, but it was densely populated. Densely populated. Uh, Moreover, we are told that it was a very cosmopolitan place. By comparison with Judea to the south, it was a wealthy region. There was a great deal of trade that went through that area. And so it was a great melting pot of all sorts and conditions of men and women. In fact, there was a large percentage of the population that was Gentile. This was often referred to as Galilee of the Gentiles. And that is where Jesus, as I said, spent the greater part of the early days of his ministry. And he was very successful up there. Uh, He went about performing great miracles, uh, oftentimes miracles of healing. Um, Lepers were cleansed. Leprosy, of course, was a common affliction in the first century, all kinds of skin conditions. Uh, But Jesus healed the sick, people who were afflicted with fevers, with diseases. Uh, He even raised people from the dead, and this was an extraordinary thing. And we're told that huge crowds, as a consequence, followed him wherever he went. In fact, chapter 6 speaks about some of those crowds. Chapter 6 records the story of Jesus feeding the multitude, or the 5,000. Now, if you were here when I preached a sermon on this about a month ago or two months ago, you may recall that I said that really to call this the feeding of the 5,000 is a misnomer. The text actually says that Jesus fed 5,000 men besides women and children, which tells us that the crowd would have been considerably larger than just 5,000. Could have been twice that number. So huge crowds in this densely populated area were following Jesus wherever he went. And his popularity had reached such a level that we're told the people actually wanted to forcibly seize Jesus and make him their king. I mean, they wanted to throw off the yoke of Roman oppression. And they assumed that Jesus, because of all the miracles that he was doing, was in fact the Messiah who was going to help them accomplish that goal. Indeed, he had been talking about this notion of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven that he was going to establish from the very beginning of his ministry. John the Baptist had preached on that, and Jesus had preached on it as well. And so the people got into their minds that Jesus, because of the great miracles that he was doing, was in fact the deliverer who had come to throw off the yoke of Roman oppression. And so they were getting impatient And they wanted to forcibly seize him and forcibly make him their king. In fact, in John chapter 6, the chapter that immediately precedes this one, we're told that actually what happened was that Jesus decided that he had to escape the crowds. Because he knew that while he had come to establish a kingdom, it wasn't that kind of a kingdom. It wasn't a kingdom that had boundaries and borders It wasn't a physical kingdom at all. It was a spiritual kingdom. It was a kingdom that was going to be built in the hearts of men and women. He had come to be the Messiah. He had come to be God's anointed. He had come to be the Savior and the Deliverer. But the real oppression was not the oppression of the Romans. The real oppression was the oppression of sin. And that's what he'd come to deliver them from. But he knew that they were not yet prepared to hear that. (laughs) They were so impatient They had their own agenda. And so as a result, we're told that Jesus decided that he was going to get away from the crowds. He had to slip away. 
Furthermore, he was dealing with grief at this point in his life. He had just received word that John the Baptist had been executed by order of King Herod, murdered. And you may recall that John the Baptist was related to Jesus. They were cousins. And John had been this man who had really paved the way for Jesus. In fact, the Lord had said, of all the men born of women, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. So Jesus knew that the people had an agenda. They were trying to force him to do something that he was not prepared to do. He was battling grief. He was exhausted emotionally, spiritually, physically. And so we're told that he decided to escape the crowds and pass to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Well, you may recall what happened. Um, He sent the disciples on ahead of him while he went up on the mountain to pray. He would join them at a later point. And, um, well, what happened was that they got caught in a terrible storm. Jesus came to their rescue, of course. And um, by the time they got to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, we're told that the people who heard that he had left the region had raced him to the other side so that they could be there for him. There was no rest for the weary, no rest for Jesus in John chapter 6. But we're told that when he saw the people, even though he was exhausted, he looked at them and they were harried and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion on them. But he realized that now was the time to give them the hard truth, that they were looking for the wrong thing. And so he turned to them and he said, I know why you're looking for me. You're looking for me because you ate your fill in the fish and the loaves. But I tell you the truth, do not strive for the food that endures only for a little while. You're going to have your bellies filled, and here you are 48 hours later or so, and you're hungry again. I tell you the truth, strive for that food which endures, that when you feed on it, you will never be hungry again. You'll be satisfied forever. And they said, where can we get this food? And Jesus said, I am that food. I am the bread of life. Whoever believes in me shall never hunger. Whoever feeds on me shall never thirst. So it's this sort of high point in Jesus' ministry. And what happened? Well, John chapter 6, verses 40 through 60 tell us that the people were offended. They wanted food. They want physical sustenance. I mean, this was the first century. These people lived in an agrarian culture. Jesus had been able to take five loaves of bread, two fish, feed in excess of 5,000 people. That's what they wanted. They had their own ideas as to what God should be like, what the Messiah should be like, what the Savior should be like. And when Jesus failed to meet their expectations, what did they do? We're told they grumbled against him. How quickly, how quickly people's attitudes change. And so they grumbled against him. And unfortunately, it wasn't just the people as a whole. We're told that even his own disciples began to desert him. Turn, if you will, to John chapter 6, because this really does set the stage for what is to come next. Chapter 6, verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, that is his sayings, what he'd really come to do, the kind of savior he'd really come to be, the kind of sustenance he'd really come to provide, we're told they replied, this is a hard saying. And I pointed out to you back in the spring 
that the word that is translated hard here does not mean hard to understand. It wasn't as though they, they couldn't comprehend what Jesus was saying. Oh, they understood very well what he was saying. What they meant by hard was, this is hard for us to accept. We don't like it. This is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? And he goes on to explain to them what would happen if, if he just withdrew the offer, if God just withdrew the offer of salvation altogether, if Jesus was to simply return to where he came from, would they be better off? And verse 66 says, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, when it says disciples in this passage, it is not talking about the 12. It's not, it's not talking about Peter, Andrew, James, John, and that crowd. It, it's talking about all these people that have been following him. You know, see, disciples is a generic word here. It means all those who were initially enamored with Jesus, excited about Jesus, but his initial excitement now was beginning to wane, whose ardor was beginning to cool. You'll recall that Jesus told a parable on one occasion. Do you remember that parable of the four soils? We sometimes refer to it as the parable of the sower, where Jesus said that a sower went out into a field and he sowed seed. And in those days, you threw the seed out liberally. Um, if you've ever seen a book published by Simon & Schuster Publishing Company, and you look on the spine of the book, you'll see a sower. That's the symbol for the publishing company. And that's how you sowed seed in the first century. You didn't dig a little hole and drop a seed in it and cover it up. You plowed your fields and then you went out and you threw out the seed liberally. And some of that seed fell on various types of soil. Some of it fell on the hard path and it glanced off. And some of it fell in rocky soil. And it sprung up quickly. But it didn't have much root. And when the sun came out, it was scorched and it perished. That is an apt description of the people here. Initially, they were very excited. You know, you, you see people like that in the church from time to time. They, they'll show up, and at first they're very excited because they show up on Rally Sunday and we've got bagpipes. You know, and every, who doesn't like bagpipes, you know? I mean, just you love them. And they're all excited about that, and, and they're excited about the enthusiasm and the excitement, but as the weeks go on, it's not always like that. And that initial enthusiasm begins to wane, and that's the way it was for these people. Oh, they were initially so excited about what Jesus was doing, but when they got the full implications of what it meant to follow him, that he wasn't going to throw off Roman oppression, we're told that they turned back and they followed him no more. Does that describe us? When Jesus doesn't meet our expectations, when he doesn't do what we want him to do, when we ask him to do something and he fails to comply or doesn't work according to our time frame, do we take offense and turn back? Do we harden our hearts as these people did? Well, Jesus turned to the 12 at this point, and that's why we know there's a distinction, because he then turns to the 12, and he asked them a question. He said, well, are you going to go too? <laughs> Looks like everybody else is going. And it's Peter who replies, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. 
So by the time you get to chapter 6, it's a chapter that starts off on such a high note with all of this excitement, all of this enthusiasm. The people are so ecstatic about Jesus, they wanted to forcibly take him and crown him. By the time you get to the end of it, they're all deserting him. Those huge crowds have gone back home. If this is what he's all about, well, we don't want anything to do with that. And that's where we pick up here in chapter 7 with this waning enthusiasm. The ardor has cooled. Now, Jesus stayed there in Galilee, apparently, for another six months because the events described in chapter 6 take place at about the time of the Passover, and the events in John chapter 7 describe the Feast of the Booths, and it's about a six-month period between those two. So we know that even though the crowds were dissipating by this point, probably took some time for them to really wane, uh, Jesus remained in Galilee for about six months. But the longer he stayed there, the more thin the crowds became. And so it was at this point that we're told his brothers came to him with a suggestion. Now, brothers here is a reference to Jesus' physical family. It is not a reference to the disciples necessarily. You do understand that Jesus did have half-brothers. Uh, there is one branch of the church, namely the Roman Catholic Church, that holds to the idea that Jesus did not have any physical brothers, that Mary remained ever virgin. That is called the doctrine of the virgin birth. That is not the same thing, by the way, as the virginal conception. Protestants, and this would include Anglicans, believe in the virginal conception, that is to say that Jesus was born of a virgin, the Holy Spirit overshadowed the Virgin Mary, and Jesus was born of the virgin. That's a virginal conception. The doctrine of the virgin birth is actually a Roman Catholic doctrine that argues that when Jesus was born, miraculously, the hymen never broke and Mary remained ever virgin. So the doctrine of the virgin birth is a doctrine that has to do not with Jesus, but with Mary. Now, I'm going to just go ahead and say this. If there are any Catholics out there, or recovering Catholics or former Catholics, I apologize to you right now. Um, there is nothing biblical to support that notion. That is a tradition in the Catholic Church. But actually, there are plenty of passages in the New Testament to indicate that Mary and Joseph went on after the birth of Jesus to have a perfectly normal marriage, and they produced children. And those were Jesus' half-siblings. And they are the ones who come, we're told, to Jesus with a suggestion. The suggestion is that because the crowds are dissipating up here in Galilee, he needs to do something to jumpstart his popularity again. So here's what he needs to do. He needs to go south to Jerusalem, which of course is for Jews the most important place in the world. He needs to do this at the time of the festival when there will be all sorts of people there. And he needs to do some of the miracles that he'd done up there in Galilee that had initially excited the people so much. Because if he does that down there in Jerusalem, where all of the power structure is, well, then he'll be back on top before you know it. 
Now, this was not an altruistic suggestion because the text tells us that at this point, his brethren didn't even believe in him. That's another reason why we know it's a distinction between the disciples and the brethren, because at this point, the disciples apparently did believe in him. Peter said, where are we to go? You contain the words of eternal life. Actually, it wouldn't be until after the resurrection that some of Jesus' siblings would come to believe in him. It would take the resurrection. But one thing was clear. Jesus was a worker of wonders. They came from a poor family. Joseph was some sort of a builder. He might have been a skilled builder, may have been more than a carpenter. But whatever he was, manual labor, the family was not wealthy. They were not influential. And the brothers are thinking, hey, I don't know who he is or what he is or what he's up to, but he needs to get back on top. And so this is the suggestion that they make. They are fearful, not for Jesus' loss of popularity in place. They are fearful for what? Their own loss of popularity and place. I pointed out last week in the sermon when I talked about how we are to become like little children, Jesus said, in order to be great in the kingdom of God, that the thing about children that is so remarkable is that children are not concerned with place. They don't care what kind of car you drive. They don't care what kind of neighborhood you live in. They don't care what your family name is or your history or any of that sort of thing. They could care less about that. And Jesus said we had to turn and become like children because he assumed we are not naturally like that. And he was right. We are not unconcerned with status, position, or place. And neither were his brethren. And so they encourage him to go down to Jerusalem. How does Jesus respond to this? Well, let's take a look at it again in verse 3. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. Come on, Jesus, you, you, you want to be recognized. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. But Jesus replied, verse 6, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And after this, he remained in Galilee. Now, he remained in Galilee for a time, but it goes on to say in the following verses that after his brother went up, he went up as well, but he went up secretly. He went up privately, not with them, not with the, his managers, if you will. He would go up quietly by himself. Now, Jesus' reply is an interesting reply. He says, my time has not yet Come. Now, we've been studying the Gospel of John for some time, and I pointed out that this idea of Jesus' time, or sometimes the expression is, my hour, Jesus says this repeatedly in the Gospel of John, my time has not yet come, my hour has not yet come. You'll hear him say that over and over again, and it's not really until we get to the end of the Gospel that all of a sudden Jesus says, my hour has come. And interestingly enough, that is when our namesake, St. Philip, 
The apostle is confronted by a group of Gentiles who come to Jesus when he's in Jerusalem, and they say, there's a group of Gentiles out there that want to see you. And Jesus replies, ah, now my hour has come. But all throughout the gospel, it is, my time has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. No, no, no. And what's interesting here is that Jesus uses a very specific word for time. I'm sure you've heard me talk about this before. In Greek, there are two different words for time. One is chronos, from which we get our term chronology. It means clock time. Minutes, seconds, minutes, hours, days, years. But the other word is kairos. And it really means the proper time, the opportune time. It's a distinction between minutes and moments. In other words, Jesus is saying, my moment, the opportune time, the proper time for me to be revealed has not yet come. Your time is always there. But Jesus was saying, my steps are ordered. There is a plan for my life, and each moment is laid out. Jesus is referring to what theologians often refer to as the eternal decrees of God. You and I, as creatures, are children of time. We live in the moment. But you understand that God is not bound by time. This is very hard for us to grasp. That God is not bound by time in the same way that you and I are. We know as a result of, whether you subscribe to this or not, but we know as a result of Big Bang cosmology that time and space at one point did not exist and then all of a sudden they did exist. So there was a time... Before time. It's when God called all things into existence that time as we know it came into existence and we as creatures are subject to it. But God as the creator is not subject to time or space. Now, he came into time and space in the person of Jesus Christ. But the Father is not bound to time or space. And what that means is that God views history in a totally different way from the way you and I understand history. As I said, we live in the moment. God doesn't. He sees the whole sweep of history. Now, I've described this any number of ways on other occasions. Sometimes I've described it in terms of uh, a parade. And we are like the person that's down there on street level and in a great parade like, you know, the Thanksgiving Day Parade, Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade up there in New York, where all you can see is that section of the parade that is going before you at this particular time. Whereas the person that's on the 20th floor of a building looks down and can see the entire sweep. of, He can see what's gone before, what's happening now, and what's coming, and he sees them all at the same time. Another way to describe this is to say it's like a river that winds starts up there in the mountains, that's the headwaters, and then it makes its way down into the forest glens, and it makes its way down into the plains, and eventually it will wind its way the whole way down to 
the sea. Now picture a man in a canoe. And he starts up there in the mountains and he makes his way down through the forest and down through the plains and eventually down to the sea. But as he's making his journey on that river, he is only in one place at a time. He can no longer see, once he is in the plain, the forest. And when he's in the mountain, he cannot yet see the forest. And when he's in the plains, he cannot yet see the sea. And once he reaches the sea, he cannot see what has gone before. He lives in the moment. But imagine the pilot in a plane who is five miles above, and he can see the entire sweep, the entire sweep of that great river. That's the way God looks at history. And that means he's not taken by surprise, you know, because we don't know what's coming next around the bend. We are often surprised, and we panic But God is not surprised. There's nothing that takes God by surprise because he can see what's coming. And not only can he see what's coming, he is prepared for it. Indeed, he has declared it to be. This is how the Westminster Shorter Catechism described it. The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. That's why Jesus responded the way that he did. He says, you're living in the moment, but my time has not yet come because God has ordered my steps And I will not go to Jerusalem until the time is right. Jesus understood very well that every aspect of his life, every moment of his life, had been carefully planned and orchestrated by the Father. The scripture bears witness to this. The disciples came to realize this. They did not understand it initially because, like all people, they lived in the moment That's why they wanted to force Jesus to go on up to Jerusalem. They wanted to make him the king. They were living in the moment. They did not understand the grand plan of God. But eventually they came to understand it. In Galatians, one of my favorite passages, Galatians chapter 4, the apostle Paul says, at just the right time, that's a wonderful expression, at just the right time. You know, that's what makes for good acting. The best actors and actresses not only have great ability, they have perfect timing. Watch Lucille Ball sometime. Go back and watch the old I Love Lucy series with Ricky. And the thing that makes her so brilliant is her timing. It's not a moment too soon. It's not a moment too late. It is right on Q. Well, Paul says, at just the right time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. I preached on this on occasion, particularly at Christmas time, when you think about Jesus' arrival on earth. It really was a great rescue mission. It was a perfectly planned, perfectly timed, perfectly executed, and successful rescue mission. And Paul says it happened at just the right 
time. He didn't come a moment too soon or a moment too late at just the right time in history. His betrayal and his death, perfectly planned by God the Father, not some sort of messy accident, although that's what we sometimes think. It's interesting to hear how Peter describes it in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 23. He is talking to the people. This is after Jesus' death and resurrection, of course, after the ascension. And Peter is preaching to the people in the temple precincts. And here's what he says. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Peter's saying, Jesus' death was no messy accident. You thought you were in charge, you're not in charge. This was all part of God's definite plan and purpose. His arrival on earth was carefully planned. His death, his resurrection was carefully planned. And when were these things planned? Peter in his first epistle says, before the foundations of the earth were laid. Now you think about that. It's not as though God is saying, oh gosh, I didn't expect that Judas was going to do that. Now what am I going to (laughs) do? It's never a situation like that. God knows it all. He sees the entire sweep of history. It's not as though he's watching individual frames of a movie as they're played out. He sees the whole thing simultaneously. What does that tell us? It tells us that God is in charge. He was in charge of the life of Jesus. There's one of my favorite passages in John chapter 18. It's Jesus. I love the way John describes it. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the crowd is coming to get him. The temple guards have gathered across the Kidron Valley. They've got their torches and their spears, and they're coming. Judas is leading them. And they think they're going to take him by surprise. He's not expecting this. In fact, Judas has got this whole thing queued up. He says, the one that I'm going to kiss, that's the one you want. And we're told that when they arrived, John says, Jesus went out to meet them. And they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, I am. That was the ancient name for God. And we're told they fell on their knees. Who was in charge? Jesus was in charge. He was in charge from the start to the finish. They couldn't have taken him if they'd had a million soldiers. The only way they were able to take him because he went with them. His time had come. Well, what are the implications for this for you and for me? Well, the implications for you and for me are clear. What was true for Jesus is also true for you. Do you realize that? There are going to be times in your life when you're going to be shocked, surprised. You're you're not going to have anticipated what has come. Sometimes it's going to be good things. Sometimes... 
oftentimes to be something you didn't expect. I got a dear friend whose son just this weekend battled a, a deadly illness that could have taken his life. They had no idea it was coming. One day, Kids seemed to be fine. The next day, he was at death's door. How in the world? It's one of those things you don't expect. You don't anticipate. Why? Because you're the man in the canoe. And maybe right now, you were down there in the rapids, and you didn't see them coming. But there is one who did. And if you're a Christian today, I want you to know he has ordered your steps. And that means you need not be fretful about your life. You need not be fretful about what is to come. You've heard me quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer many times. Bonhoeffer, of course, was that German pastor who was imprisoned by Adolf Hitler. I mean, think about that. Of all Hitler's enemies, and he had a lot of them, I mean, he had German generals who plotted his demise, but of all the people he feared the most, it must have been Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor, because he was the last man ordered to be killed by Adolf Hitler. Think about that. As the Allies are tightening the, the cordon around you, you're thinking about that German pastor. He's got to go. He's the problem. And Bonhoeffer remained hopeful to the end. And one day when the guard came in and said, how can you be so hopeful? Don't you realize that at any moment the order could come down for your execution? And he replied, I do not know what the future holds, but well, I know who holds the future. Do you know that? You don't know what's coming tomorrow. None of us do. It may be placid water. It may be class five rapids, but there is one who has seen it, who knows it, who has decreed it, and who will be with you always, even to the ends of the earth. So let not your hearts be troubled. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for... Jesus' absolute confidence in the timing of his Father. We pray that we might enjoy that same confidence. In this world that is so fickle, where people can be enthusiastic about us one moment and desert us in the next, there is one who sticks closer than a brother. Grant us the grace to trust you and your eternal decrees knowing that you see the beginning from the end and will safely deliver us home. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.